Uh, and if you've been tracking along, you know that we're, for the past 13 weeks, this work marks week 14, we've been working as a church through the book of Acts, and every single step of the way, what we're discovering is what authentic Christianity looks like. And so last week what we did is we took a look at this monumental decision that took place at the Jerusalem Council. And what that decision really served to show people like us is that above all else, we should do everything that we can to show people Jesus in a way that makes it easy for them to believe. So we should, we should lead with Jesus, in other words. We should lead with Jesus, not our customs, not our culture, not our politics, not our opinions. Because when we lead with Jesus, in a sense, we're making it a whole lot easier for people to meet Jesus. And now for the next two weeks, we're going to camp out in chapter 16. And this is where Luke records three case studies of three wildly different people who meet Jesus in three wildly different ways. Today we're going to look at two of those case studies. One involves a highly successful cosmopolitan businesswoman. Uh, the other involves an unnamed slave girl who in so many ways is like a modern-day victim of human trafficking. And then next week we'll take a look at uh, the Philippian jailer who ends up meeting Jesus in a powerful way that really no one Expected. And now as we explore these stories, here's what, I, here's what my aim is. I want to give you a sketch of who each of these people are. I want to show you how the gospel comes to each of them. And then I want to show you what happens when the gospel comes to them. And then lastly, I want to show you what we can learn from these stories. And now the, the way that Luke, the author of the book, book of Acts, records these stories makes it very clear that these were firsthand eyewitness accounts that he was present for as each of these people met Jesus. So let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16, verse 13, where we're going to meet a woman named Lydia. It says there, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. So immediately we learn a ton about Lydia. Um, we see this picture of a cosmopolitan woman who's got connections to two global cities. She's from Thyatira, but she's actually relocated for business reasons to, to Macedonia, where she's, she's literally positioned in the largest city in Macedonia. She's cultured. She's well-traveled. She's an entrepreneur. So you could think of her as a woman who owns a, a really high-end boutique in a global city. And, and, and in fact, it's the largest city in Macedonia. And her product line is purple cloth. And because the process by which cloth was dyed purple was so extremely expensive, what it ended up serving as during this period of time was a symbol of beauty, wealth, and power. And so her clients would have included wealthy um, cultural elites who in essence were purchasing purple cloth to put their affluence on display. But Lydia wasn't just a savvy businesswoman. We read that she was a worshiper of God. Or in other words, other translations will throw in the, the phrase, a God-fearer. And what, what God-fearers were, in essence, is they were Gentiles who had left behind paganism or polytheism or whatever their worldview may have been. And they were seeking God. They started seeking God by way of reading the Bible. And so at this time, it's important for us to remember that they didn't have access to the New Testament. All they had access to was the Old Testament. So, so this picture of Lydia that I'm trying to show you is she's this self-disciplined, 
highly put together, successful woman. She's got good morals. She's got high integrity. And uh, frankly, she's admirable. She's respected. And she's the kind of woman that you'd want your daughters to grow up and become. So this is who she is. Now what I want to show you is how the gospel comes to her. So God-fearers like Lydia oftentimes would gather with with Jewish Christians in synagogues, uh, but because they were Gentiles, they didn't always feel like they belonged in that context. And so sometimes they'd have their own gatherings. And that's exactly what's taking place here in Acts chapter 16. It's the Sabbath. Lydia's gathered together with some other God-fearing women. They're searching for answers about life and about God. And they're doing that by way of reading the Old Testament and praying. And while they're doing this, while they're gathered together, Paul, Silas, and Luke show up and they sit down with them. And now the fact that, that these guys sat down, it implies something about the group size. It, it, it gives us a picture of that, that this was a small scale group because if it, if it were a large crowd, Paul and Silas and Luke would have addressed them by standing up. So given their posture, the other thing that we can infer here is this wasn't a pitch. Uh, this wasn't a sermon. This was a, a low-pressure, give-and-take discussion about God. And this is, this, is, this is what I want you to see here. This is how the gospel came to Lydia. And here's what happens as a result. It's recorded in Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 14. It says this, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. Now in the Greek, um, there's something pretty powerful there, something pretty helpful there. Because the words pay attention don't just mean pay attention uh, as we might know them to mean. What, what those words mean is that she was attracted to. And there's, there's other places, actually one place in the New Testament, where this same verbiage is used to describe someone who gets addicted to wine. So what I want you to see here is that when Lydia responds to Paul's message, she didn't just find it interesting. She was absolutely captivated by it. She was enamored by it. And here's why. You see, Lydia by way of cultural context, was raised in a culture that was influenced by two schools of philosophers. On one hand, you had the Stoics, and on the other hand, you had the Epicureans. And so the Stoics were convinced that the pathway to living a good life was to not love anything too much. So in essence, to detach yourself. And now for them, what that was driven by was this high ideal that strength individual strength is ultimately what mattered. And so in order to accomplish this, you couldn't get too close to anyone because eventually the people that you get close to, they let you down. And loving people, they saw it as something that made you weak because in order to love somebody, you got to be vulnerable enough to give them power over you in a sense. And so strong people don't give other people power over themselves. And so the Stoics, really what they believed was the harder you love, the harder you fall. So detach or be devastated. Now, the Epicureans, on the other hand, were a little different. Their personal happiness was was their highest cultural ideal. And for them, life was really just all about self-actualization and designing a life in a way that was going to make you happy. And this was driven by this, it was kind of like a fear that they had or or a deep belief that they have that, that life was all you had and when you die, that's it. So live for yourself because you only live once. And now whether you were living the detached life of the Stoics or you were living an an outwardly self-centered life uh, as the Epicureans were, you were living a life that that in either case was extremely selfish because you were at the center 
of everything. And these were the philosophies of life that people like Lydia, and I believe people in our culture are grappling with, but people like Lydia in the first century, they tried this, these ways of life, these philosophies or worldviews, but now they were abandoning them, which begs the question, why? And now historians, here's what they say about the spread of Christianity through the Roman Empire in the first century. They said that thousands of people, like Lydia, abandoned the philosophies of the Stoics and the Epicureans to embrace Jesus. Um, and so, so here's what, in essence, had happened. See, classical Greco-Roman paganism and polytheism, while it may have produced some of the sharpest, brightest minds, people like Plato and Aristotle, what it left the average person, person with was a deep degree of en- emptiness because it, it provided no hope for the future. It provided no ability to love because if you love anyone too much, you're only ever going to get hurt. And if you sacrifice for other people, they're only ever going to take advantage of you. But what they didn't realize is that if you live for yourself, in the end, all you have is yourself. And so this is kind of what sent Lydia on this search for something that her worldview just couldn't give her. But when she abandoned the emptiness of paganism and polytheism, What she found was just the exhaustion of religion as she turned page after page through the Old Testament scriptures. And this is something that we talked about last week. You remember in Acts 15, we had Peter who said, and this was in reference to, in response to Jewish Christians that basically were going around telling Gentile believers or God-fearers like Lydia that the only way to be saved was by obeying the Mosaic law. And so in essence, here's what Peter says. This is actually what he says in Acts 15, verse 10. He says, Why do you try to put around the necks of Gentiles a burden that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And what Peter was saying to to fellow Jewish Christians was, "Why Why are you so eager to take on the law? We've been trying to do this for centuries, and everyone who's ever tried it has only ever been crushed by it. And so this dilemma that the Jerusalem council settled really is the same dilemma that Lydia and other God-fearers are now facing. They were stuck between the emptiness of living for yourself and the exhaustion of trying to save yourself through good works. And what people who have tried these things on for size ultimately discover is what Lydia discovered, that neither of these approaches to life work. And so the message that Paul shares with Lydia It's this third way. It wasn't the emptiness of irreligion, and it wasn't the exhausting burden of religion. Paul wasn't telling Lydia to live her life in a certain way. He told her about about Jesus, who lived a perfect life according to the law that she saw in the Old Testament. And he's the only one who's ever done this. But Jesus didn't stop there. He took it one step further, and he went to the cross as if he had lived a life marked by breaking the laws of the Old Testament. And by doing this, here's what he secured. And this is what I believe Paul shared with Lydia and what she would have heard that was so enamoring and so captivating. By doing this, by going to the cross, Jesus secured the blessing that perfect obedience to the law deserves while fully taking on the curse that disobedience of the law deserves. And so Paul would have explained that Jesus, that when you embrace Jesus In essence, the curse for all of your disobedience, it falls on him. And that means that the blessing that Jesus secured through his obedience falls on you. This is what it means to be saved by grace. 
that you get something you don't deserve. And that through Jesus, this burden of feeling like you have to save yourself through good works is lifted. And through Jesus, this burden of feeling empty because because you're living a lifestyle that just doesn't yield what you thought it was going to yield is filled. This is the message that Lydia was attracted to. She wasn't convinced by a compelling argument. She was enamored with Jesus. And so she gives her life to him. She's baptized is what we read. And then she starts reorienting her entire life around Jesus. So that's Lydia, this cosmopolitan, sharply dressed, well put together businesswoman who hears the message of Jesus through a rational give and take discussion, becomes absolutely enamored with Jesus and it transforms her life. So I think this is a pretty amazing story, but I think the next one is even more intriguing. Go ahead and turn to verse 16, where we meet an unnamed slave girl. Here's what it says. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. Now again, there's a, there's a ton of detail in this really short verse. And what we end up, what we end up saying is that um, we meet this young slave girl And the Greek word that's there helps us understand that she was somewhere between the age of 10 and 14. She's just a child. Uh, So in essence, she's not really making decisions on her own at that point. So I think she's much like a a victim of modern day human trafficking. So So we can assume she's been abused. She's exploited. She's experienced deep trauma in her life. But then she also has this supernatural ability to tell the future. We're told that she has a spirit of prediction. And now I want to show you something because the the Greek translation, you won't find this in any English translation, says something markedly different. It says that she was filled with the spirit of the python. And I don't think English Bibles translate it this way because I feel like that sounds a lot more like a biker gang than a supernatural ability. But she's filled with the spirit of the python and ancient readers would have understood completely what this meant because they were familiar with Greek mythology and they were familiar with the Oracle of Delphi. Now the Oracle of Delphi, really what it was is uh, it was about Delphi who was a fortune teller and he got his powers to tell the future or be a seer of the future when Apollo slayed the great python. This is how he got his ability. And so this really was just an idiomatic expression to describe someone who had the ability to tell the future. But it also implied that this is someone who was deeply tormented internally. Uh, They spoke wildly. They cried out. They shrieked. And so I would assume that if you or I were to come across a person like this, um, we'd probably think that they were mentally ill. But then the only thing that would throw us off is that they had this ability to know things that they shouldn't have known. And here's what she knows that she shouldn't have known. It's in verse 17. Here's what she she knew that she had no business knowing. It says, as she followed Paul and us, and that's Luke just showing us that he was right there on the scene, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. Um, so, So the word shrieking, first off, means she's shouting, right? And so you can imagine this, that everywhere Paul went, she's trailing behind him like a shadow, and she's shrieking. And this isn't just shouting, this is like Linda Blair, exorcist type shouting. But, but here's what she's screaming, and I think this is so intriguing. 
she's, she's screaming this. She's saying, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. Now, at this time, you got to remember, nobody knew what a Christian missionary was. And if you did, you really hadn't figured out what they were about. And so she knew, she knew this when no one else knew. She knew that they were there to tell people about the message of Jesus And she's bottom lining it in what she's screaming. And she's saying the message of Jesus isn't just an ordinary message. It's the true way to be saved. And this is how this is how that message came to her. And and keep in mind, she's not she's not just a slave. It's way more complex than that. She's experienced the rejection of her family. She was sold into the situation that she's in. She's economically oppressed. She's being exploited. So she's a slave both inside and out. And she's wildly different than Lydia. And the gospel comes to her in a wildly different way. Let's look at how it's recorded in verse 18. It says, And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated, and turning to the Spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her right away. So she's running around shrieking and with every scream, Paul's getting more and more annoyed and eventually says, I can't take another second of this. But keep in mind, he's deeply annoyed, but his annoyance is only in part at the little girl. His annoyance is primarily focused at her oppressor and the abuse and everything that's been tormenting her. Paul is so angry and irritated, he turns to the spirit in her and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ come out of her. And now, now back then, names were far more important than they are now. So your name was, essentially it was your nature. And if you change your name, you change your nature. And what Paul is saying to this slave girl is that Jesus' name is greater than anything and everything that has ever held you back or oppressed you. And Jesus' name is now covering you. And immediately, she's set free. Everything that oppressed her no longer has a hold on her. Can you see how different this encounter with Jesus is. Lydia needed something rational. This girl needed something powerful. Lydia was a model citizen who was stuck between the emptiness of living for herself and the exhaustion of not being good enough. She needed to know that Jesus could fill her and set her free. But the slave girl didn't just need to be set free. She needed a new master. She needed someone powerful enough to break the chains of oppression and slavery in her life. But she needed someone who was whole enough to heal her spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. And that's exactly what she found in Jesus. Look, stories like this can be compelling. But I think uh, they're really there to show us things. They're, They're there to show us something. And I see three things in these two stories about remarkably different people who had remarkably different experiences with the power of the gospel. Uh, The first thing I want to show you is that Jesus values all lives, but he prioritizes the marginalized. Jesus values all lives, but he prioritizes the marginalized. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 16, we hear about Paul's vision. And this is what drove him to Macedonia. And his vision was a Macedonian man standing and pleading with him. Cross over to Macedonia and help us, is what the man was saying. And Paul's so awestruck and compelled by this vision that he goes to the biggest city there and he takes Luke and Silas with him. And the story literally picks up on what could have been like his first day on scene. And so the, he, he ends up running into a group of women and it's intriguing. I think we could, we could 
miss this if we're not looking for it. It's intriguing that he didn't keep moving in search of a man. The vision was of a man. And frankly, culturally during that time, women were marginalized. They didn't have status or influence. It would have made complete sense if Luke would have said, oh, cool, having a ladies Bible study, moving on. I'm just going to go find some men so I can, I can actually launch this church. Paul does nothing of the sort even though that could have been a very bad look for Paul given the cultural dynamics and perspectives on women during that time. But despite that, Paul sits down and he ends up having this give-and-take discussion with this group of women. And he ends up telling them about the message of Jesus and, and, and some would say at the risk of his reputation. And here's what I think Paul was doing. He wasn't prioritizing influence. He was prioritizing people and not just any people marginalized people. And now if we see Lydia as marginalized for being a woman, I think when we zoom in on the slave girl status in society, that's even worse because she was property, not a priority. And what happens to Paul after he spoke the name of Jesus over her and the chains of oppression were broken shows us that prioritizing marginalized people can be a costly thing. Take a look at verse 19. Here's what it says. It says, when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews, and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. This is is unbelievable. Paul literally sets this oppressed little girl free and it costs him his freedom. See, breaking the chains of oppression isn't, isn't convenient, it's costly. And what we see in this, this passage here is that first century Christians were willing to risk their own freedom to set others free. And for them it wasn't about counting the cost, although we should do that. It was more so about believing in the infinite value of people to the degree that regardless of the cost, it was always going to be worth it. And here's, what, here's, here's when, in my opinion, prioritizing people actually happen. Prioritizing others happens when you're most interested in the best interest of others. That's when prioritizing people happens. And so it's no small thing that these stories, one is about a woman, the other is about a slave girl. Because historically, and even now to a certain extent, depending on where in global society you live, historically women and children, and particularly girls, have been victimized, abused, and marginalized. And I'd say this, that humanity as a whole is far from putting the injustices against women and children and and certain races and groups of people behind us. But what Paul shows us here is that Christians, despite all that, they should be leading the charge by living in a way that values all lives but prioritizes the marginalized. Because Jesus values all lives but he prioritizes the marginalized. And here's what happened as a result of Paul prioritizing Lydia. Jesus ends up empowering her to become a pillar of the first century church. She becomes a pillar of this church that gets planted in Macedonia right in her own home. And this might be news to you, but women like Lydia played a critical role in revolutionizing the world with the message of Jesus during the first century. There are other accounts in the book of Acts that talk about women. Women like Iodia and Syntyche who weren't just impacted by the message of Jesus, they were empowered by it. And through being thrown in jail, Paul shows us how the early church prioritized marginalized people. But they weren't just prioritizing them. 
They were empowering them. They weren't just inviting them to this proverbial table. They were showing them that the table had always been made for them. It, was, it wasn't owned by a specific religious group or gender or type of person. It wasn't about the type of life that you'd live or the credentials that you held. Because the, because the table exclusively belongs to Jesus, it's inclusive of everyone. Everyone can have a seat. And the thing is, everyone gets a seat the same way, by grace, through faith in Jesus. So first, Jesus values all lives, but he prioritizes the marginalized. Now second, we see that freedom comes when we orient our lives around Jesus. So Lydia meets Jesus and immediately begins reorienting her entire life around him. Listen to verse 15. It says, after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now the Greek word that's there that's translated persuaded really shows us what Lydia was trying to say. She was saying, I want to reorient my entire life around Jesus. I want my life to point to Jesus. I want the lives of the people closest to me, the people that I'm connected to, the people in my community, in my city, to be transformed by Jesus. I want my home to be a place where people meet Jesus, a place where chains are broken, where healing happens, where people get healthy and whole spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally, a place where burdens are lifted and people are set free. Lydia isn't orienting her life around Jesus to try to earn freedom. She's orienting her life around Jesus so that other people can experience the freedom that she's experienced. And now the only reason Paul was in Macedonia is because he oriented his life around Jesus. And because of Paul, Lydia and the slave girl were set free and they're experiencing freedom. And what history goes on to record is that through Lydia opening her home and orienting her life around Jesus, people all across Macedonia and beyond end up embracing Jesus and experiencing the same freedom that she had experienced. And I think this this should be the story of every Christian. That we use our freedom to set others free. That we orient our lives around Jesus so that other people can experience freedom in Jesus. And I believe that that happens every time we open up our homes or we make ourselves available emotionally to people who are hurting or we share what we have or we, or we just listen to people. Even if they don't believe what we believe or value what we, or, or value, what we va- value, I think every time that we do things that have the, the best interests of others at heart, I think every time we do things like that, we're giving people the opportunity to experience the freedom that only Jesus offers. Because freedom comes when we orient our lives around Jesus. But thirdly, thirdly we see here that Jesus, and this, this, is, this is important, I think this will unlock something in your life perhaps. Um, thirdly, we see that Jesus embraces us before we can embrace him. Jesus embraces us before we can embrace him. And that's what I see in verse 14. And here's what's recorded there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. Very plainly, Jesus opened her, her heart. And, and there's a ton that we could say about this, but here's the, here's the main thing. I think, I think that most people know that when someone is struggling with an addiction, uh, the, the struggle oftentimes, probably all the time, comes with this extremely deep 
layer of denial. And part of the addiction is the fact that you can't even really see how bad off you are. And so somebody has to break through. Somebody has to intervene. Somebody has to get in there in a way that helps you see how bad off that you are. And, and, and I believe that we all understand this when it comes to addiction, but I think that there's something here that applies and, it, and, it, and this verse shows us when it comes that, that's very similar when it comes to our relationship with God. In a sense, we're kind of all like addicts. And what I mean by that is that no one really wants to admit that we're not in control of our own lives. We all want to think that we're competent enough to, to make the right decision or run things in a way that they should be run. Basically, we're competent enough to, to run our own lives. But the most intriguing thing about the gospel, and this is that the, the truth part of the gospel, is that it says, no, you're not. You're not capable. In fact, it, even, it, it goes so far as to say it's impossible for us to... To, 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 save, to, to believe Jesus unless Jesus first has embraced us. And so uh, because this is such a hard concept for us to, to wrap our minds around, we, we, we deny it, we rail against it, we disbelieve it, we discard it. But what we see here is that it was the conviction of the first century church that we, like the addict, are in need of a spiritual intervention. That we can't even believe the gospel on our own. Only Jesus can give us the intervention that we need. And that the only way that we can embrace Jesus is if Jesus first embraces us. This is what Paul clarified when he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. Um, this would have been years later. It's recorded in Ephesians verse two, or chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Here's what it says there. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, Paul says. It's a gift. It's, a, it's God's gift. And it's not from works. So that no one can boast. And so maybe, maybe you're like Lydia and you're struggling to find God. Uh, but I want you to know that you can't find God unless God is already trying to find you. You can't even want to find God unless God has already found you. So relax. You don't have to find Jesus. Jesus finds you. And now on the other hand... You might have someone in mind, a person that you really, really love, and, and, and your deepest desire is that they would come to faith in Jesus. You're dying for them to believe. And so you're doing everything, and you're saying everything that you can. But keep in mind that there's only so much that you can do. There's only so much that you can say. You can say all the right things on the outside. You can live in a way that shows people Jesus. You can live in a way that shows people how much Jesus loves them. But what needs to happen for a person's life to be transformed is something that can only happen on the inside. And that's a place where only Jesus can work. And what we see here is that the gospel is so powerful that anyone can embrace Jesus, but we can't embrace him on our own. Jesus embraces us before we can embrace him. And now to close... What I want to show you is what I believe is, is kind of the bottom line of, of these three stories in chapter 16 in the book of Acts. It's what this entire chapter is pointing to uh, when it shows us three wildly different stories of three wildly different people who are met by Jesus in three wildly different ways, all by the same gospel, all transformed, all set free, all put on a new trajectory towards life. And here's what it is. It's that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. And then this also shows us that anyone can embrace Jesus. Look, look how different these people are. They're wildly different. 
Linda's an, or Lydia's an accomplished entrepreneur in a global city. And the girl's a victim of human trafficking in a global city. Lydia's a business owner. The girl's owned. Lydia's life is completely put together. The girl's life is completely out of control. This is why Jesus comes to them in wildly different ways. But the outcome's the same. Jesus embraces them, and when he does, their lives are absolutely transformed. So look, when you hear people say things like, oh, well, well if Christianity works for you, fine, or, or, or if, if faith in Jesus works for you, fine. But I just want to show you that the premise behind that is that there, what, what's believed in someone saying that is that there's not a faith that can work for everyone. But this chapter shows us that Jesus is true enough, he's powerful enough, he's flexible enough, and he's inclusive enough to transform absolutely anyone. Look, we get so wrapped up in typecasting people and in stereotypes. We, we say things like there's conservative types or liberal types or cultured types or messed up types or, or put together types. But the question is, what's, what is the Christian type? What is the Christian type? This verse shows us that there, these verses show us that there really is no Christian type. Because whoever you are, you need Jesus. And whatever your need is, Jesus can meet it. It's Jesus who's so amazing that he captivates and enamors Lydia. It's Jesus who's powerful enough to set the slave girl free. And what these stories show us is that Christianity was always intended to be a faith for all. Because everyone needs Jesus and anyone can meet Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so, so grateful that we're able to gather on a day like today and just remind ourselves that it's not up to us. That it's not up to our good works or our ability or our degree of success. And, and, and we're so thankful that it's not contingent on whether or not we've ever failed. Our failure in that equation is something that you can absolutely and utterly overcome so that it no longer holds us back. And Jesus, I just ask that you would help us to be a people that first and foremost understand that we can't embrace you unless you first embrace us. And that once you do, it changes everything. Jesus, we are so thankful for grace, and that is by grace, through faith in you, that people can be saved. We're so grateful that there's not a person outside of your reach. There's not a person that you don't care about or don't want to transform. And Jesus, help us to be people that reorient our lives around you so that we take the freedom that you've given us and we use it, we leverage it to set other people free the same way that Paul used his freedom to set Lydia free and the slave girl free and in the same way that countless Christians have put themselves at a disadvantage so that others could experience the advantage of knowing the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, help us to become a people that are so centered on you that we'll, we'll follow you anywhere for the sake of lives being transformed by you. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for you. In your holy name, amen.